the key thing here uh, is water and blood. Now, I don't think it's a great mystery what that is, but I think it's a, a good way of uh, John summing up what it is he wants to say. Um, and the water, I think, is clearly a reference to divinity. Uh, different people take it different ways. You know, this refers to the baptism, or this refers. But I think the the main point is, if we remember the false teachers, that they would separate the deity and humanity of Christ. And so, the baptism is that point where the Spirit descends on Christ in the form of a dove, and God's voice says, "You know, this is my Son, in whom I'm well pleased." So, I, th- I think that. It is may not be referring specifically to baptism or Christ's baptism, but simply to the idea of the divinity of Christ. <clears throat> but of course, actually, it's not the water part that is troubling. It's this, the uh, uh, blood part of the equation, especially that for the false teachers is troubling. And maybe it's the key component that we need to work out. And so tonight I'd like to focus on that. Because obviously it involves the incarnation. It, so there are many passages. I, what I was going to do at first is just go through all the flesh and blood passages. And I thought, well, that's sort of boring. You get the idea. Flesh and blood uh, embodiment. So, you know, there are many passages. You know, Jesus says uh, that you've not received this through flesh and blood. In fact, at the beginning of Galatians, Paul says, I did not receive this gospel by means of flesh and blood. So... It's human existence, uh, and of course the idea here is uh, also connected to the blood sacrifices. Um, This actually goes back to Chris's question. It's been now several months ago. Um, uh, About the nature of the Old Testament sacrifices, and so I think that if we get that straight, and uh, we can get understand what John is saying. But some people say, oh, this is referring to communion. Uh, well, in a reinterpreted understanding of communion that Alec gave us last week, we we're describing a shared life fully dedicated to God. And I think that's the idea of the sacrifice, the blood sacrifice. It's not that the sacrifice has to do with death, but it has to do with life. And notice in this passage at the last uh, verse 12 in First John that he's talking about eternal life. And that's always the case. I, I think I'm going to use always in an unqualified sense that even the blood sacrifices, uh, they're not concerned with death. They're concerned with life and a life dedicated to God. Um, if you think of the Old Testament sacrifices really taking place then, as a kind of uh, theological reenactment or pointer, pointer back to Abraham and, and Isaac, um, that you know what happens there is not that Isaac was you know killed, but rather that Isaac is a pointer to Christ, and that the the sacrifices then Isaac is one who's completely dedicated to God in terms of communion, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? If we get, 
in other words, if we think here in terms of traditional understandings of sacrifice, we're going to miss what we just did. No, it's sharing in life, sharing in life together, body and blood. Um, in uh, in Ephesians, you know, and this I think especially refers to the dualism, overcoming Gnosticism. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. So there's an overcoming of dividedness, an overcoming of dualism. There's an overcoming of violence. John and I did a paper, you know, our presentation on what is violence. Well, you could describe violence as dividedness. Dividedness how? Dividedness in terms of the individual. But, you know, Paul's, I do what I don't want to do, or dividedness in terms of the corporate body of Christ is overcome. You know, that's the, the that sort of violence is overcome in Christ. So we're talking about a fellowship embodied, and this embodied fellowship is represented by the blood. First uh, John 1 7, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. What is sin? Dividedness. What does the blood do? Joins us together into one body. So it's, we almost need to rework our paradigm here of, of the blood. Um, so in the interpretive mode of the false teachers, and I'm afraid that tends to be our interpretive mode, <clears throat> blood and water cannot mix. Humanity and deity cannot become permanently one. Uh, in their understanding, the blood would be subsumed by the water. The, the divinity would displace the humanity. There you are. Good to see you. Welcome. Welcome. Uh, good evening. Glad you guys came. But in what John is saying, it is through the water and the blood that we are saved. That's precisely his word. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Look at the emphasis, not with the water only, but with the spirit, but with the water and with the blood. I'm sorry, but with the water. It is the spirit who testifies. So the tendency of the false teachers would to say, oh, it's purely deity or it's purely water. 510, the one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. And I'm pointing to that. I don't know if you, I think I did this a little bit last time, but what is, you know, the, did, oh, maybe I did it in a, in a blog. I can't, the free, three proofs of Christianity. We did that here. And believing is one of the proofs, which sounds funny at first. What do you mean believing is a proof? Well, if you understand believing in the way we've just described it, that there is this overcoming of dividedness, that there is this incorporation into a new economy, uh, then the belief itself works itself, you know, it is, a, uh, as he says, it's self-evident. So the closed economy of this world would not allow for the divine to take up residence. And this is part of our problem in rightly understanding the blood is that we may focus on spilt blood or uh, embodied life succumbing to death that is the primary story 
conveyed in the Old Testament sacrifices in the life of Christ. But the theological meaning of the blood in the Old Testament is not to relate it to death, but life dedicated to God, right? We did a bit with that uh, a few months ago when we talk about the blood put on the, you know, the, the, uh, that it's not that the, uh, uh, it, it's the life given to God. And think here of, you know, Isaac dedicated to God. And of course, Christ is the true Isaac, one who's completely dedicated to God. So the Isaac is fulfilled in Christ. Now this gets it the, the meaning, you know, this is uh, the idea of the two goats that Frank and I have talked about. Uh, the, the goat that is sacrifices, that is sacrificed, we could say is a picture, is representative of a kenotic, kenosis, you know the word from Philippians, of a you know, a love that completely gives itself. Uh, at the Mount Moriah, where Isaac is sacrificed, God himself says that he names the mountain, the mountain the Lord is seen. So in the mutual self-giving trust of Abraham, Isaac, and Yahweh, uh, this is an icon of God's own inner life. You know, this is, who is, who is Abraham uh, a type of? Actually, he's a type of God. And his sacrifice of Isaac is, you know, that's a picture of the inner economy of who God is. And so what's being re-dramatized and reinforced in the, the sacrifices of Israel is the event on Moriah. <clears throat> so that God should be known as kenotic love is the new revelation that is fulfilled or that's given to us in Christ. Uh, uh, I'm sharing here from a, a guy named Richard J. Berry IV. And Berry has written his doctoral dissertation on the two goats. And it's I, I'm sure it's going to be a book or something soon because it's just excellent work. And what Barry does, he takes the, the work of uh, David Bentley Hart and Hart's picture of, you know, the Hart focuses on the, the goat that is sacrificed. And then also the work of Hans Balthazar, who focuses on the, the goat sent into the wilderness. And so what Barry is doing, he's bringing these two theologians together and say, well, actually... They, we need both because that's what the two goats are. They're actually both things. That it's representative of God in the instance of the goat sacrifice, but it's also representative of the defeat of sin, the overcoming of evil in the goat that's sent into the wilderness. But the, the first goat is a, a, a life completely devoted to God, which undoes a violent economy, you know, with, with the divine economy. <clears throat> this is a quote from uh, David Bentley Hart commenting on Genesis 22, which is the story of the sacrifice of Isaac. Israel, for all the multiplicity of its cultus, fails to imagine uh, an economy of sacrifice that neatly closes off the cosmos in a cycle of strict equivalence and indemnity. Hart has a 
very beautiful way of writing that sometimes is a bit obscure. But what he's saying here is that the closed economy of a violent sacrifice is not what's happening in Israel. That's the pagan sacrifices. That's the sacrifices of propitiation, you know, in which there's a direct blood payment for something. This is evident from the beginning of Israel's story in the binding of Isaac, a sacrifice that does not affect a limited transaction with the sublime in the interest of founding or preserving a city. You know, this is usually why sacrifices are made, <clears throat> to, to, to preserve or found a city, to preserve a people, to preserve, you know, as part of an economy. Uh, the offering of Isaac can serve no economy because all of Israel slumbers in his loins, because he is the child of Sarah's dotage, who cannot be replaced, because he is the whole promise and substance of God's covenant. He is manifestly, in his particularity, infinitely other. He is the entire gift returned before the gift has been truly given. But then God, who is not a God of the indeterminate sublime, feeding upon the destruction of the beautiful, but a God of determinate beauty and love, gives the gift again. Henceforth, Israel is doubly given and can know itself as gift imparted by God and offered ceaselessly back to God in the infinity of love's exchange. What he's describing then is not an economy of, you know, uh, a debt and payment of a debt, but an economy of a gift of self-sacrificial love. He's saying that's there in Abraham and Isaac, that's reflected in the sacrificial system in the temple fulfilled in Christ. So the major characteristic of the goat for the Lord was that it symbolized life, and thus it associated with the temple itself. In 1 John, when we talk about blood, I think our immediate thought is death. But wait a minute, look at the context. The whole context is about life. Um, and this life is associated with the temple itself and its most holy center, which represented life as it was intended from the beginning. Precisely as the great symbol of life, this goat is also associated with the ancient Jewish theology of sacrifice. Despite, and this is Barry, despite the common misunderstanding that imagines sacrifice as being an alliance with death. So the, to the contrary, Israel's priestly offering sought to reestablish order and harmony by returning again and again to the wholehearted way of life first established by Abraham and Isaac. Uh, this is the soteriology of the Bible. Not a soteriology of debt and payment, but a soteriology of kenotic love. It's there from the beginning in the sacrifice of Abraham and in the goat sacrifice. Uh, it will interpret Christ's work as drawing together, restoring, and elevating all things through a genuinely good and meritorious movement. And here we're getting a little bit into uh, the early church's doctrine of recapitulation. The idea that 
This movement of Christ reiterates and perfects life as it was intended. Think here, Romans 5. The first Adam is recapitulated by the second Adam and perfected. That's the imagery. So on in this context, Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, it represents the very presence of true life. And that's the, that's the blood, the life blood. It releases, eradicates the miasma of death, which had sought to suffocate the temple itself. This life conquers death by virtue of its own superabundant vitality. Death is unable to comprehend it, unable to mount any response at all. Uh, The Yahweh goat is pure reaffirmation of what is most ultimate and true, an Edenic work that is victorious by virtue of its own divine vitality. Think here, you know, the reference to Eden. The tree of life is a tree in which there is continual life made available. The image of the tree is only restored in Revelation. I don't think the tree is ever mentioned again. I may be wrong there. Uh, but between, the whole story is really about those the tree being restored, the tree of life, right? The, uh, the idea is that uh, we have access to eternal life. That's what John is talking about. So the, the mode being introduced in the story of Abraham is perfected in Christ's own life, in the way he lived every moment. Not just his death, but his life, his death, his resurrection. Um, So, and this then is the way that, you know, what is the evil that Christ comes up against? It's a different economy of the prince of this world in a closed system in which, you know, uh, death swallows everything. Evil is definitive of everything. Uh, this is uh, David Bentley Hart. Therefore, just as Babylon once moved to swallow Judah, the totality mobilized against the one called the Christ in an effort to enclose him within the normal economy of violence to secure the peace of the state through his death. Why did they kill him? Caiaphas says, don't you know that this man might must die that the nation might be saved. And of course, what Caiaphas means by that statement is what every pagan sacrifice would mean. He does not get the deeper meaning. Oh yes, Israel will be saved, but not, you know, according to a violent, you know, the the idea that we must do evil that good may abound. When the structures of violence mount their attacks against the beauty, goodness, and truth of the infinite made flesh, the shape of the attack is cruciform. The cross itself, of course, is of pagan origin. That is, pagans killed him, right? I mean, the cross itself is a kind of uh, a, a Roman uh, uh, instrument of torture. And so the crucifixion in itself expresses perfectly the sacrificial logic of the secular order. The the travesty is when we interpret the cross of Christ according to the secular order and don't get the fact that, no, this isn't about sacrifice according to a pagan understanding. This is the undoing of that sort of sacrifice. 
And so Hart, you know, talks about the cross as the intersection of two modes of sacrifice. From a pagan perspective, the the cross is a sacrifice in the proper sense. Destruction of the agent of social instability in the interest of social order. That's, you know, in Rene Girard's picture, that's why every sacrifice is made. But even as the powers and principalities surround him in an effort to close off his open-hearted communion with God, Christ lives more and more fully according to Israel's sacrificial ideals, which is to say Christ continues to lift his heart to the Father in the style of the burnt offering. And this is Barry is running down. Well, the burnt offering is then this picture of a life given completely to God. He continues to live in the way appropriate to one who dwells in God's presence in the temple. He continues in all things to choose life over any alliance with the forces of death and violence. The point is, if we understand Old Testament sacrifice through the light of Christ, then we can understand how it is that atonement is being worked out. Atonement, not some something in the mind of God, but a real-world defeat of evil. Because these two sacrificial systems, the one that would separate the blood and the water, paganism, Gnosticism, every sacrificial system in the world, and the one in Christ that joins them together, those are the two systems we have. Paul or John is going to refer to one. If you hold the blood and water as separate, you make God a liar. You undo Christianity. And, of course, this is the picture of those who sacrificed him, sacrifice him for uh, 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 pagan purposes. Um, Christ's death is a typical political sacrifice. But Jesus himself goes much further, taking what the world had intended for evil and uniting it to the ultimate good proper to his own divine nature. Uh, so this, it rightly understood, is the fulfillment of the sacrificial movement that Israel practiced, you know, day in and day out. Uh, the heart talks about the two two systems. One is a totality, a totalizing system. This is, you know, think here of I always think Hegel is the perfect example of this. I'm going to tell you everything in a closed system. And the other as an infinite system. The, uh, the practices of the totality confront the true sacrificial orientation of the persons of the triune God, as when darkness encounters light. The former cannot comprehend the latter. Think here of Jesus' statement. You know, the light has shone in the darkness, and the darkness cannot comprehend it. Why can't it comprehend it? Because it's of a completely different order, a completely different sacrificial system. The morning glow of Easter Sunday is the great confirmation of what has always been true, the good news known since Moriah. Israel's God is the God of life and not death. And thus to enter the divine movement of mutual self-giving is ultimately to find the abundant life, which is the heart, uh, the heart's original Edenic bliss.
This is why we were created, to be in communion with God, in loving communion with one another. Uh, this all is, you know, this is here in Irenaeus. This is, by the way, what John's paper was on at the conference. Christ recapitulates humanity's struggle against evil and in so doing achieves the victory that humanity could not. He who is from the beginning, the head of all things, recapitulates the human in entirely in the shape and substance of a whole life lived for the Father, never lapsing into sin, never yielding to the temptation to turn from God, enacting in every instance the divine figure of the human. Uh, so the, divine, you know, the disobedience of Adam brings uh, death into the world, and the obedience of Christ brings life. This is the story of world history. There is death defeated by life, you know, and that's the, the two forms of humanity, the two economies that are all-encompassing. Um, so to know the good in the Christian reflection is not primarily to study tablets of law. It is not a particular form of ethics. I'm quoting Richard Barrier. But it is a way of being and seeing shaped by the unique drama of the Savior's life, death, and resurrection. You know, you could, uh, you could talk here about the pagan sacrifices, the thing that, uh, the, the whole economy there, we don't need to go into that because you already know that. What is that system? It's a system of violence. It's a system in which death is a necessity, in which we'll do evil that good may abound. Um, it is the system I've, I've pointed out. I can't remember if I did this here. You know, this is the thing. This is the insight of postmodernity. You know, Derrida's deconstruction. What he arrives at is that identity through difference, there is a root problem there. And he's seeing this in the history of thought. Derrida is very biblical, very Hebraic, except in his idea that there is no possibility for justice. We, can, we will only relentlessly pursue justice and never achieve it. Because of the identity through difference, this violent economy, for these guys, that's all there is. They cannot imagine, I believe, in, and we should not expect that they could imagine, the economy given to us in the love of Christ, apart from the revelation that we have in the New Testament. Of course, they're Derrida's a kind of atheist. You know, this is, this is Lacan, this is Zizek. Zizek is, takes us a step further and describes it psychoanalytically. Um, you know, this is, you could, this is really the discovery of Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, who discovers this violence everywhere. This is, you know, his Dionysus and Apollo. Um, but it, you could, this is everything. <laughs> I mean, this is just, this is just one economy. But once you see that, once you see this economy, if you don't know, can't see it historically, look within yourself. Because that's where this thing exists, in our own violent attitudes, and, you know, anger, jealousy, wrath, in which we would sacrifice the other for ourselves. Um, so this is the interpretive frame, unfortunately, that is often put on the Old Testament. Um, but in the Old Testament, the idea is that the, the Yahweh goat 
as articulated in Leviticus, is a picture in which life conquers death by virtue of its own infinitely superior dynamism, its perfect compatibility with the God of life who makes Zion his throne. And uh, Barry's dissertation, which I've only, I'm quoting there again, <coughs> goes into great detail into how this is the proper understanding of the Jewish sacrifices. Uh, it's a theological interpretation, obviously, and it's a theological ter- interpretation that stands over and against, you know, the, the typical, not only in terms of the Old Testament, but then also it is a kind of way of battling a misinterpretation of the New Testament. All right, I'll stop there and let's see if you have any questions. Where can you find his dissertation? Right now you can't. I'm, uh, uh, but I, I am convinced he will soon have it as a book. Uh, yeah. He, uh, he wrote it at Marquette University, so... I don't know if it's online through... A lot of times universities will put these dissertations online. Uh, but it was shared with me privately, so I, I didn't I wouldn't want to share it. But uh, I'm, I'm sure it will come out. All right, let's look at uh, our first John passage. Wow. You want to read the first one, Sharon? This is the one who came by water and blood. Jesus is Christ. Jesus Christ, not only with, not with water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. And if you look at commentators, you know it, uh, the the verse is a little obscure, and and everybody says, yeah, he didn't explain because he just assumed that apparently this may be a formula that everybody knew. But you don't have to, it's not a complicated thing, I think. Given the context of John, given the, given the false teachers, uh, I think he's just talking about divinity and humanity. But he's talking about water and blood permanently mixed. Divinity and humanity permanently joined. Creation and the body of Christ as the eternal temple of God. Right? Creation then as the proper dwelling place of God and man together. That's the significance of Christianity. The significance of this phrase that is being undermined by these false teachers who would separate the water and the blood. I think this is just our tendency. This is every, you know, nearly, you know, I I think this is the danger in... uh, modern modernity and modern Christianities. I don't mean to make sweeping statements, but I think in as much as Protestantism is connected to a kind of Lutheran, Calvinistic nominalism, and to some degree every Protestant group is, it would separate the water and the, the blood. Now, Luther is specifically fighting this, you know, when he says God died on a cross. But unfortunately, he also buys into another kind of dualism. 
uh, anomalism. So if we can get this straight, these two things are conjoined. Maybe you can't explain it. That's okay. You don't need to be able to explain it. But every Christian explanation makes its departure from there. This is the understanding that we're working with. It's not an understanding that we can arrive at having begun somewhere else. Uh, God become man. You know, who could imagine? Well, I think we can't, given our own power. But given the power of the Spirit, which brings us to the second one, verse there, Christian. For there are three, Well, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sorry. For there are three that testify. Am I right? There's a missing verse here. And it's purposely missing in some of your Bibles. That it seems to be a later edition. Does anybody have a footnote on that verse? Mm-hmm. Read, the, read what is missing, Faith. It says, late manuscripts of the Vulgate testify, Vulgate testify in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one, and there are three that testify on earth. Not found in any Greek manuscript before the 16th century. So... Uh, the the somebody made a note in the margin and said, "Oh, here's the Trinity," and tried to put it and it worked its way in, but clearly it doesn't belong here. What John is talking about, it may be Trinitarian, but it's not. The, it is the idea of the incarnation, of you know, uh, a testimony given to us in the deity of Christ, that Jesus Christ, the man Jesus brought together with Christ, is then the realization of that understanding is the testimony of the Spirit. But but again, believing this incorporates us into a body in which that belief, you know, what the, the word testimony, witness, is used throughout here. How do you testify? How, what witness do we give? Well, again, it's the witness of Christ uh, that is embodied, you know, in in the, the church, and that is test. That's the work of the Spirit. The Spirit always joins us together, right? Where 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 is the gift of the Holy Spirit? Is he inward, you know, in in the individual? Well, I don't want to exclude that, but the individual then is made an individual by being incorporated in the in the body. Okay, uh, and then, uh, David, you want to do verse 9 there? Do eight. Oh, I'm sorry, do verse 8. The Spirit and the water and the blood and the three are in agreement. The water, the divinity, the blood, the humanity, the Spirit then is at work. You know, who, the Holy Spirit is the one that brings things about in the world, right? In the divine economy. Uh, the Spirit is there at the birth of Christ. The Spirit is at the, there at the beginning of the ministry of Christ. That the Spirit is the enabling power 
of the divinity of Christ given in humanity. And so too in our walk, it is the Holy Spirit that enables us to walk as Christ walked. You have the Holy Spirit inasmuch as you display, Paul says, the righteousness of God. You're made right through the Spirit. If you think here, what's death? Death is absence of life, absence of the water, life-giving water, absence of the Spirit. Death is dividedness, alienation. What is life? It is the, you know, the incorporation of uh, an agreement. It is a unified testimony. And then, uh, Michael, you want to do verse 9? If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son. Uh, to my mind, uh, this is our apologetic. Not the testimony of men, but the testimony of God. That is, we our apologetic is directly centered in the person and work of Christ. Well, I don't believe we can begin an apologetic outside of that center. Belief is an apologetic. Christian ethics, Christian life is an apologetic. Uh, God is his own apologist in the work of the Son. This is, you know, Van Hooser's article and uh, the, the, you know, are we on a uh, pilgrimage, kind of wandering around looking for the truth? Are we on a crusade in which we kind of beat people over the head with our, the sword? Or, in fact, are we on a missionary journey? And that is the idea. We witness to Christ, not because we uh, own this witness or not because we are you know in some way uh the you know the the owners of the word but we point to then what god has done in christ and then uh rachel you want to do verse 10 i'm i'm just talking away here if anybody has any comments or questions don't hesitate the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. This sounds funny. Does this mean that the testimony is a private testimony? I think that we could mistakenly take it, you know, that in some way it's a but I think what Paul or what John is describing is uh, this thing that is called believing is world encompassing. It makes all things cohere, and this coherence is one that we experience in the overcoming of our own dividedness, our own alienation, our own reconciliation, which is already a corporate idea. Uh, is you know this is the the big failure i think of a christianity that would say we can know god on the basis of a foundation of human reason i think the danger is we make god out to be a liar because it says that we can get to god by some other means than christ but what this is saying is no uh 
we believe in the testimony that God has given us concerning his son. That's the beginning point. Because that beginning point is so contrary to the human economy and the human way of knowing. And then, Jake, you want to do verse 11? And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And so this brings us back in our discussion of the blood. What's it all about? It's about life, not about death. What has Christ done? He's overcome death through his life and given us his life. And so we too give our lives as he's given his life, and that is life. That's definitive of life. To not give your life, a life unshared is death, right? Life or love unshared is not life or love at all. But it is necessarily uh, doing life together. It is necessarily, uh, you know, an agape love is by definition a self-sacrificial love. And what is, you know, the idea is that we are continually giving ourselves, this is the continual witness, because this, this counter-economy, I think, is one that's continually up against us. I mean, we all feel it. You don't have to, it's no mystery that we're all every day faced with this, this other thing that, you know. And, and so it's not a one-off idea, but we continually then uh, give ourselves as he gave his life. It's a kenotic process. And Alec, you want to do verse 12. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Uh, pretty point blank. And by life, he means this economy of life, this whole uh, idea of return to the tree of life. To You know what the tree of life represented? It represented the presence of God. That was what was represented in the temple, right? God is present in the temple, but it was a symbolic presence. But now Christ has entered in. You know, this is the significance of Christ entering into the temple, you know, at the beginning of John. The Lord has entered his temple. But, of course, the true temple is the church, and this is where the presence of God is to be found. And so... This life we need to recognize is this thing that overcomes dividedness, violence, you know, agonistic conflict. And it shows itself, it is a testimony within us in the unity that we have. The unity corporately, you know, in as much as we're a divided body, we do not have life. And the unity that we have individually uh, that that is its own testimony. All right, comment, question, objection. Okay. What <laughs> <laughs> in the church in the church there? John, what were they? Can you go back to maybe again? What he's writing against? It's the Gnostic. Yeah, it's the, the, by John we may actually be dealing with Gnostics, but at least it's proto-Gnostics. And the Gnostics or the proto-Gnostics, they're saying, 
flesh is evil, material things are evil, spirit is good, and the way you get saved is you leave behind the world for the the spirit. And so they would describe this in terms, apparently, of a secret knowledge, a mystical knowledge, and by knowledge I assume what they mean is some experiential knowledge that you have this you know, radical secret experience and you will know God in a kind of visual seeing sort of way. And so the, by the time you get into second century, you got full-blown you know, Gnosticism in which it is, I think then, you know, Valentinianism is what Irenaeus is going to write about. And we, I think we can project Valentinianism back into something close. You know, Irenaeus is just a generation. He's Polycarp's student. Polycarp is John's student. So we're not very far removed from a full-blown Gnosticism. They would deny Christ in the flesh, right? They would, yeah, they would deny the divinity. They would deny, you said it exactly right, Christ in the flesh. That Christ representing the deity. They would say, oh, there's the man Jesus, and there is Christ. There is the water deity, and there is the blood, but never shall the twain meet. So what John is saying, it's not just the water, it's not just the deity, but it's the humanity. And the two are fused together. So was the was Gnosticism a common like philosophical idea outside of the Christian of Christianity, or was it something that developed because of a misunderstanding of Christianity? Yours is a very good question, and the way that I would answer it is to say that Gnosticism is the human tendency in dualism you know I I think Gnosticism in as much as it's a dualism is always present but there's not an actually existing Gnosticism in the first century it's not a religion now some well I won't even mention they don't worth they're not worthy of mention because I I think that's a well-established understanding but I think Gnosticism is prototypical even today of false teaching. That is what the Gnostics do is what I think we all tend to do mm-hmm. is to to disembody that which is essential. Uh, to uh, make a, you know a, a, a distant place heaven and a distant you know, to talk about in terms of an, uh, a removal from this world. So the Gnostics were very much otherworldly in their emphasis. It's, it's a mixture of Platonic thought. I think Platonism is a dualism. It's certainly, it's Neoplatonism in the sense that Neoplatonism is a focus on mysticism, you know, no know, knowing is is an experiential. It's not just an academic knowing, but it's an experientialism. So I think that I would project the proto Gnostic problem 
back into you know the first century uh, and I think that's what John in the Gospels and the Epistles is fighting already but it's not a religion that you can you know eventually in the second century you can go to town and say show them towards the Gnostic church and they'll say oh it's down the road big sign over the door I don't know if there was a sign over the door but uh, that it literally was a, a separate and established religion. And so you can read the, the Gnostic text. And so what you get in a mistaken theology uh, is to think, oh, John is, or the New Testament is itself a dualism. You know, when John uses all those dualistic categories, light, darkness, life, death, they say, oh, see, there's the dualism. But look at the dual. Wait wait a minute. The light penetrates the darkness. Life overcomes death. So there's an apparent dualism in which one of the opposed pairs is defeated by the other. Uh, that death, nothingness, evil, turns out to be nothing. But, it, but that's not exactly right. Because it's a... That, that, that system in which we would give ourselves over to death is a real-world system that has us in its grip. And that's what Christ is defeating. This is, the danger is, you know, this, I was reading Carl uh, Barth on this, that he, he almost makes the nothing something. He almost <laughs> falls into this mistake of Heidegger. Evil is not anything except a parasite on the good. And so, how does Christ deal with evil? You know, look at his life. How do we, and this is the model, how do we deal with evil? Do we duke it out? You know, this, we, Faith and I just watched the movie Fences, in which the main character, you know, he keeps challenging death. You know, come on, death. I'll take you on with my baseball bat. Um, well, you can't really duke it out with nothing <laughs> or death. And to imagine that you can is to give it, an, uh, to make an entity, or, uh, to reify it. And so if we call out this thing for what it is, I think that's the reality. Jesus doesn't, he doesn't engage the principalities and powers as if they have real power. His is just a demonstration of their powerlessness in his own death and resurrection. I think that's especially true in the portrayal in the Gospel of John. Jesus is in control even on the cross. I mean, that's, <laughs> think of that. You know, he's ordering everything. He says, it is finished. The very words that are pronounced at the end of this creation story. The recreation that John is talking about, it's now finished. Recreation has commenced with the death of Christ because in his death he has shown he's defeated the powers. He's replaced one system of sacrifice for another. So if we can get that straight, the two systems, literally that's the misinterpretation of the Old Testament, but it's just pervasive. They keep wanting to put the pagan system 
into the Old Testament. 